An investigation by a group of media outlets on the spyware Pegasus revealed how journalists and political dissidents have been targeted by governments through private espionage, posing a threat to personal rights and international security. The Tunisian President Kaye Saeed dismissed the Prime Minister and suspended Parliament after anti-government protests, a move which has been termed as a coup by the largest political party in the country. Heat waves and extreme temperatures have been recorded across the world, with floods, landslides and fires raging across Canada, Europe and Turkey. Climate change is speeding up, presenting global leaders with concrete threats that can no longer be ignored. Finally, fires at factories in Bangladesh which killed 52 people and left 20 people injured reveals how factory owners in the country still need to respect human rights and the need for a new binding safety agreement that ensures a safe working environment in Bangladesh. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of the Human Rights Pulse News Briefing, where every other week we address some of the biggest human rights news and events. I'm Laura. And I'm Nigel. In the last week, Tunisia's president fired the country's prime minister and suspended parliament for 30 days after protests on how the government was handling the COVID-19 pandemic. The president stated that he was taking over after the government's failure to handle the pandemic exacerbated Tunisia's economic woes. So, what happened here is that on Sunday, July 25th, President Syed invoked Article 80 of the Tunisian Constitution that allows for necessary measures to be adopted by the president in case of imminent danger for the country. The president had been threatening to resort to this measure for a while, listing as reasons a flawed constitution, a system that facilitated power deadlocks, and and a worsening economic crisis in the country, fueled by widespread corruption. And these were all some claims shared by many Tunisians. Plus, the management of the pandemic has not made things better to top it off. And all this charged people's disappointment towards its government, feeling the need for a radical change. Many have actually been demanding for the government to step down during protests in the past weeks. Tunisia is no stranger to protest. They have been protesting in 2012 against the creation of an Islamic state. In 2013, they were protesting over the government appointment and the role of religion in government. And in 2018, they were protesting against price hikes. However, this has been said to be Tunisia's biggest political crisis since the revolution in 2011. The biggest opposition party, the Inada party, has termed the move by the president as a coup and stated that the president does not have the power in law to suspend parliament. Experts are however saying that the move by the president is not really about the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, but a chance for him to consolidate power. The Inada party has tried to rally the international community to have the move termed as a coup. However, the German spokeswoman stated that even though Germany was worried, they didn't want to talk of a coup. Well, yeah, it is It is not clear if this can even be classified as a coup, really. On the one hand, along with the Prime Minister, the President also suspended the Parliament for 30 days and all foreign offices for two. And according to Al Jazeera, who has been quite vocal on condemning this move, the newspaper's offices have been uh, raided soon after and its journalists expelled. 
On the other hand, instead, many have welcomed the decision, taking to the streets to celebrate, also being faced by some supporters of the other side, including Islamists, that have defined as an attempt at endangering the country's democracy. The big issue is that this system has been internationally paraded as a great success for democracy, especially considering the outcomes of the Arab Spring in other countries. But what followed the revolution did not really bring improvements to the lives of Tunisians. It only increased the levels of corruption and inequalities. And during the past decade, the country has seen an increment in security threats and terrorist attacks. So it seems fair for the people to raise the issue if whether this is actually the right system for them. The international community has responded with a series of statements. For instance, the UN has called for the settlement of all disputes and differences in Tunisia through dialogue and urged all parties in the country to exercise restraint and avoid violence. The African Union has toured a similar line, urging Tunisia towards a peaceful political dialogue to resolve current problems. The EU and the United States have been more outspoken, calling for the resumption of Tunisian parliamentary activities as soon as possible and a return to democracy. The Arab League called on Tunisia to restore stability and calm, so it seems the international community is concerned with the situation in Tunisia, but as you said, this is not really a coup and we have not seen many countries calling it one. Even civil society have issued statements which do not characterize the situation in Tunisia as a coup. For instance, Amnesty International called for the respect of human rights after the suspension of the parliament and Human Rights Foundation issued a statement in which it called on the president to exercise restraint from the use of violence. However, experts have said that there is also division within the Tunisian civil society over the situation. Yeah, yeah, that is a fact. But uh, the president has justified his actions as legitimate and framed within the law, although this remains uncertain. Overall, what he has always presented as his plan is to create a democracy free from political affiliations with delegates and officials appointed by merit and with a system building from the ground up, so from the local level to the higher ranks of government. In pursuing this plan, he has established strong ties with the army as well. To be honest, I would say that there really is a political risk component to the situation, but people might be ready to take it, possibly preferring this outcome to what they've had so far. What seems to make the situation in Tunisia more serious is the fact that some law experts are saying that the president acted outside his constitutional mandate and failed to interpret the constitution. And the only body that can resolve this issue is the constitutional court. However, Tunisia does not have a constitutional court at the moment. It should be noted that although there is no visible court on the side of the president, the military seems to be on his side as it has been deployed on the streets. And we understand that the president has been in talks with the trade unions, which seem to be very powerful in Tunisia. Yeah, drawing conclusions, we can say that the situation remains unclear and no hard lines can be drawn as of now. Is this good for the country? Is this the prelude to an autocratic derive? What we can say is that so far the idea of a democratic Tunisia has been considered good as a given really 
as a great accomplishment under Western perspective, possibly, and a win for the locals. But do Tunisians really want this type of democracy or will they instead prefer to create their own system? I guess we will see in the next few months. And moving on, an investigation done by The Guardian and 16 other media organizations shows that human rights activists, political leaders, journalists and lawyers across the world had their electronic devices surveilled by governments using a hacking software called Pegasus, which is sold by Israeli surveillance company NSO Group. Pegasus is a malware that infects iPhone and Android devices to enable operators to view all content on a phone, including apps with end-to-end encryption, GPS location, and record calls with a secretly active microphone. Amnesty International highlighted new ways through which Pegasus can be installed on a phone, for instance through security flaws in iPhone's messaging service, iMessage, or clicking a malicious link. Yeah, media organizations and research teams like The Guardian, Citizen Lab, The Washington Post, and Forbidden Stories have recently revealed new details on this phenomenon. A phenomenon that if I have to be honest, has been known for a while already. The first time I personally came across the spyware was over a year ago while researching digital activism, surveillance on citizens and the Snowden case. If we look well enough, there are blog posts, minor reporting and whistleblowing, if, if we can be called so, that date back to at least 2018 warning against this malware and addressing the worrying issue of private surveillance. So, for as glad as I am, and as everyone should be, for this really massive news to be out in the public like this, it is somewhat concerning that it took so long for it to to see the light of big media titles. But, coming back to the recent revelations, the non-profit media project Forbidden Stories got their hands on a leaked list containing over 50,000 phone numbers which had been selected for surveillance. Since 2016, as they found, um, it seems that people have been targeted in more than 50 countries and most of the people targeted are journalists, human rights activists, political opposition leaders, even heads of states, relatives of prominent international figures, people who are in direct contact with national officials, and since what this spyware does is literally see everything that goes through your phone or around it, that poses a threat not only to the people directly targeted, but also to everyone they are in contact with. And in the case of national agencies and official, for example, this could be dangerous on a security level. Investigation by The Guardian revealed that countries would select individuals whom which they sought to surveil through the spyware, for instance countries like Rwanda, Morocco, Mexico, India, Hungary, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been identified as using the software. World leaders have also been identified as victims of the spyware. For example, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa appears to have been selected by Rwanda, the French President Emmanuel Macron and the EU Council President Charles Mitchell appears to have been selected by Morocco. The Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, appears to have been selected by India, and the list goes on. However, countries such as Rwanda and Morocco have denied using the spyware against foreign leaders, while countries with loose legislative frameworks on authorization of surveillance, such as Hungary, have argued that this is in line with the law. Yeah, what both NSO and its clients have done is 
justify the use and creation of this software as a tool to combat terrorism and essentially saving thousands of lives while doing what they do. However, as shown by the leaked list, most of the people targeted, as we said, are journalists, human rights activists and dissidents. And you name some of the countries who acquired this technology, they tend to adopt authoritarian measures, to say it kindly, and are prone to censorship. In, in a lot of cases, comparing journalism and criticism to terrorism, actually, and that is concerning. Among the names that have appeared in, in the list are Indian opposition leader Raul Gandhi, the fiancé of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed in the Saudi embassy in Turkey in 2018, allegedly under direct order of Prince bin Salman, and also the wife, kids and close friends of Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, UAE princesses Latifa and Haya, who were both victims of intimidation, even torture, allegedly in Latifa's case, from the Sheikh, who's the father of the first and the ex-husband of the latter. And as, as for before, the list goes on with high-profile names. NSO denied the reports made by The Guardian and maintained that they sell their technology to fated clients. As you know, under the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, Businesses like NSO are required to respect human rights and provide remedy when violations occur as a result of their business operations. The selling of a software which could amount to mass surveillance could potentially violate the right to privacy and in some instances endanger the lives of human rights activists. Thus, NSO must take necessary steps to mitigate this through conducting human rights due diligence where they sell their products to check if the product will be used for legitimate reasons and if there is strong legislative oversight on surveillance. In response to this, Israel has also created a task force to see if it is necessary to regulate cyber exports such as Pegasus. Yeah, actually, the main issues here are two. First of all, spyware is no longer exclusive. What before could only be done by strong states backed by big STEM labs and a tight intelligence network can now be done by any state and virtually anyone by buying these private products. The second concern is that this puts at unprecedented danger any sort of dissent in these countries and possibly in all those that decide to acquire technologies like this in the future. Not only destroys anonymity of sources and confidentiality, but it forces many journalists to self-censor as their lives, their relatives' lives, their collaborators' lives, they're all in danger. Locations can be acquired, pictures, recordings from your device, access to microphone, contacts, chats and emails, camera. They're literally watching you every step you take. And adding to this is the underlying threat to national security for other countries, as we touched upon earlier. Essentially, this type of spyware allows and facilitates abuses, it undermines freedom and destroys privacy, especially considering how it is used compared with how it is justified. It is also important to note that the revelation of this spyware might lead to some diplomatic tensions. For instance, as stated before, it seems that African President Cyril Ramaphosa was targeted for surveillance by Rwanda. The two countries already have a strained relationship since 2013, with many Rwandan dissidents seeking refuge in South Africa. 
Also, the French president was targeted by Morocco, but it is currently unclear where the relations between the two countries stand, as Morocco depends on French diplomatic support in advancing its interest in multilateral fora like the United Nations. Yeah. All in all, the weaponization of technology in such a way has an enormous chilling effect on media freedom and freedom of expression, not to talk about personal rights of the individual. Another consequence of this is the resulting shift in the power balance and trust between a government and its population. These institutionalized abuses take away any sort of limitation to how far the people in power can and will go to undermine you and stop you from criticizing them. Human rights groups and experts in the field have been raising the issue of the uncontrolled proliferation of commercial spyware and after the release of this information, the international community is asking governments to actually introduce some sort of regulation for this field and for these products since obviously they cannot regulate themselves. But many countries around the world are customers uh, of these companies. They might not be of NSO. They might be uh, purchasing different services or, or operating under different principles. But it is unlikely that they are complete strangers to this type of services. And this prevents an actual and fast solution to this problem. In addition, many of the services run in secret as everyone involved, from the creators to the providers to the clients, they all prefer it this way. And until this goes on, it will keep on being used to undermine human rights across the world. Moving on, July 29 was marked as the 8th overshoot day, which symbolizes the moment when humanity consumes all the natural resources for the air, and from then on, humanity is in debt with the earth. This system then generates a deficit which is carried on year after year, determining overshoot day to come closer and closer as time goes by. The process has slightly slowed down during the 2020 lockdown pandemic, with less fuel consumption, pollution and overactivities decreasing to a certain extent of course, but this has since picked up, showing how humanity does not seem to be adapting to environmentally cautious use of natural resources. Yeah, you painted it well, really. In the past years, we have seen a lot of changes in our climate, now always more often referred to as an actual crisis, and this year has not been any better at all. In around a month, we have seen several extreme events taking place all over the world. Unprecedented heat was recorded in Canada, with fires completely destroying the little town of Lytton in British Columbia, and not too long after that, Torrential rain in Germany and Belgium caused floods that killed more than 150 people, with many more still missing. Also, northern Italy was affected by floods and landslides in the area around Como, while Sardinia and Sicily were in turn affected by fires that have destroyed herds and fields, amounting to millions in damages. And record high temperatures are being recorded everywhere, every day, along with continuous heat waves. And this does not seem to be like usual climate pattern. In fact, it has been highlighted how such temperatures and prolonged hot weather in areas like North America and Canada would be virtually impossible if they weren't facilitated by human interference with the climate. There would be something like one in a thousand year event. This is what ultimately makes them more concerning. Events like these are happening with higher intensity and frequency that some scientists predicted. Climate records are extremely worrying, 
but scientists are accused of alarmism for voicing their concerns and urging governments, companies and the global community to act faster. Yeah, alarm on climate change has been strong for years, but unfortunately so has been its suppression. In, in late June, The Guardian reported on an unprecedented wave of lawsuits targeting big oil companies which for decades have undermined and defunded climate research while putting together actual disinformation campaigns by only showing selected data and pushing climate denialism, deliberately creating doubt and uncertainty even inside the scientific community and projecting it over the public. Yes, citizen states are filing lawsuit after lawsuit against companies like Exxon, Shell and BP. Last month, we already addressed the Dutch court ruling against Shell, which compels the company to cut its emissions and take action against the impact of its production on climate. And this past year has also seen a renewed commitment being somewhat expressed by leaders in the US, the UK and the EU. Also, the long-anticipated COP26 summit, which will take place in Glasgow during the first two weeks of November this year, But why is this summit of four others so important? Well, these summits have been taking place every year since 1995. And the last one has by some been defined a failure. This time the US will be back in the game uh, after rejoining the Paris Agreement. And overall, the COVID-19 pandemic has influenced a re-evaluation of global priorities, especially when it comes to the environment and, and life on Earth in general. So this is seen as the event to come up with concrete plans for the future. The situation across the world is quickly deteriorating. Many of the countries that are most susceptible to climate change consequences are on the brink of a non-returning point. The world has reached 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels way too close to the 1.5 limit identified by scientists. If we go past that, the Earth might not recover from the consequences of the damages it would suffer. And all the floods, fires and heat waves we discussed above is proof of what could be our future, and it can get worse. Also, this could determine shortages of food and famines, especially in the poorest countries of the world, and create unlivable habitats for both men and animals. Yeah. And in all this, this month was announced that the Amazon rainforest is now producing more CO2 than it can absorb, while deforestation and fires keep on raging in Brazil under the watch of President Bolsonaro, who does not look like will be doing anything to stop this anytime soon. Overall, facts are showing that time is running out. The international community should find more concrete and effective steps to reverse these worrying trends and managed to reach goals set by the UN for 2025. They slim up, but we have to remain one for don't we? Yeah, we definitely do. Moving on to Bangladesh, two fires which started at a juice-making factory and a food processing factory which killed 52 people and left 20 injured exposes child labor and poor fire safety standards in industrial areas. On the 9th of July, an infernal blaze tore a six-story building of a food and snake factory owned by Ashim Food Private Limited. The building had locked exit doors when the fire erupted, which violated Bangladesh factory laws. The law said that a factory cannot lock its exit doors when workers are inside during production hours. Details of the death toll show that children also burned in the fire, and UNICEF Bangladesh stated that at least 16 children had died. Yeah, that is really sad news. 
and employment is actually illegal in Bangladesh under the age of 14 but at the same time 12 and 13 year olds are allowed to perform what's defined as light work under a law that prohibits jobs in railways or during night shifts. However, the definition of light work is quite lax and still allows for up to 42 hours a week of work, which is basically a full-time job with extra hours. Isn't this a contradiction? Doesn't this facilitate child exploitation under legal justification? Well, yes. Data by the US Department of Labor revealed that 4.5% of children between 5 and 14 in Bangladesh engage in exploitative work to support their families. UNICEF and the UN affirm that over 3 million Bangladeshi children are working jobs under hazardous conditions. It is also important to note that safety standards in Bangladesh industrial areas are not the best. Dozens of disasters occur in Bangladesh year after year due to poor fire and building safety standards. The worst was the 2013 collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in Dhaka that killed over 1,000 workers and injured hundreds. Yeah, the government has actually promised reforms after this incident, resulting in the 2013 Bangladesh Accords on Fire and Building Safety, which was supposed to regulate the ready-made garment industry for the following five years. But how has that played out? Yes, the accords were supposed to end in 2018, but were extended until 2020. And because of the pandemic, the accords were further extended in May 2021 for a further three months to allow for more time to conclude negotiations on a new binding safety agreement. Without such an agreement, apparel brands and factory efforts towards factory safety would cease to be legally binding and would lack union participation, thus reducing the task to make factories safer to an exercise in self-monitoring. Well, if there are these accords in place, though, why do industrial disasters still keep on happening in Bangladesh? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, <laughs> labor unions argue that um, accords have made a difference since inception. For instance, electoral issues have been reported as fixed, among other things. But the International Labor Organization said in 2017 that you know Bangladesh regulatory framework and inspections had not been able to keep up pace with the development of the industry. Now, labor union and civil society organizations are calling for a new binding safety agreement that ensures a safe working environment in Bangladesh. Sadly, we have been hearing a lot about labor exploitation and abuses, especially when it comes to the fashion industry. And in many countries, this really undermines the human rights of its citizens that find employment in the sector. We will definitely explore more of these in the future. Well, this is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you found this interesting, please do share it on your social media and remember to tag us. If you want more of this content, visit our website at humanrightspulse.com and check out all of our colleagues' amazing work. And if you have any feedback or stories you would like to hear on our next episode, get in touch. Take care and until next time.